Father in heaven, we acknowledge that indeed you are our salvation. There is no other place that we can turn to be saved in the way that we must be saved. To have our hearts and our lives cleansed, made holy and righteous before your very sight. There's nothing that we can do to make that happen. There's nothing someone else can do that is on this earthly plane that can make that happen. Only you can make that happen. And you did. You did through your deliverer, the name, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son. He came and He has opened up a way for us to be both made right and holy and in communion with you. To make this moment of worship not merely play acting, but a spiritual reality that's deeper and at the very foundation of the world itself. Father, it is that that we acknowledge right now before you. Even before we give our attention to this word from Daniel chapter 8, we give attention to Christ, the greater Daniel, the one who was perfect in every way, the one who has redeemed us. We give him praise and honor. And we ask that he now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would come and would open up our minds to this passage that's before us. That you would teach us what it means. And that you would teach its meaningfulness for our life and for our time. Bless us now with your presence as we read and explore your word together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you probably noticed, we began our reading uh, in Daniel a little earlier in the book today because it's a long passage. And so we're already through 14 verses that I will in some way, in shape or form, give treatment of today as we explore God's Word together. But I want to pick up our reading in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 15 in what we might call the interpretive or translated section of the vision. Indeed, I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute as we seek to understand what it is that is actually being told to us. For the time being, let's give our attention to God's Word, beginning in verse 15 of Daniel chapter 8 and continuing to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. As I was considering, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He touched me, and he made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make his deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. 
Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So what have I gotten myself into? You know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. You ever said those words before? It seemed like a good idea. Let's tackle the latter half of the book of Daniel. This will be fun. Someone asked me, he said, what really prompted you in this? I said, well, I just love to put a challenge out there for myself to see if I can even do it. Can I make it through it? Can we get there and can we get it done? No, it wasn't just that. No, it was actually believing that chapter 7 through 12 of the book of Daniel is so poorly treated in many cases that it's important for the people of God to dig in deep and to learn much about the treasures that are here underneath, in many cases, the wild and bizarre imagery of what lays before us, as we saw last, year, last week in Daniel 7, this week in Daniel 8, and we'll see again several times before they get to the end of Daniel 12. It's often so poorly treated. It's often neglected altogether, not even touched on. And after reading today, I'm beginning to wonder, did I make the right decision by looking here at Daniel 8 with you? Well, I, I'll let you be the judge of that as we go through it. I was reading this week, I was reminded of our vacation a couple of weeks ago. Hmm, what's the parallel? Um, well, the parallel is we did something that we had never done before on our vacation. We went sailing. Some of you have probably been sailing before. We'd never been sailing as a family before. We went to the beach, we were there for a week, and it wasn't something we planned to do. It simply went down, as I do early in the morning when we take a beach trip. I put up the umbrellas and the chairs, and I'm there alone, me and the water and the sand and no one, and watching the sun come up. And all. Everybody else is still asleep at the house because they're, well, they're on vacation. Some of us still get up early when we're on vacation, and that was me, and I'm down there, and I begin to see this guy, these boats. You know, he's pushing them out there towards the water, and you tell he's going to rent these things. I didn't think too much about it, but it has always been kind of a dream that I'd get the chance to sail at some point, at least experience that. So I was sitting there with my mom later in the day, in this, listening to the waves crash upon the sand, and I looked over and I said, you know, I think he's renting those sailboats. She goes, well, you know, you've always wanted to do that. Said, yeah, yeah, I've wanted to do that. You should, go, you should go ask him how much it costs. Oh, it costs too much. We don't have enough money for that. We can't do that. We can't go sailing. She said, just go, go ask him. Well, of course, I ventured down there. This is a multi-day working up the process of whether we're going to do this or not. Go down there, talk to him. Sure enough, it's way too much money for me to be able to do it. Come back and, oh, it's too much money. Don't worry about it, Mom. Well, Nate, we might help you if you are interested. And, you know, a sweet mother kind of... You know, I have resources, and I might be able to assist you. And I was like, Mom, you do that for me? You know, kid in a candy store, like, oh, it's going to be fun, it's going to be so fun. So I began to talk with my, my kids, who really had a great time. We did one of those little short tours out in this little 16-foot catamaran, really awesome. And we were with Kyle, who was the, the sailor, who was the person who knew what was going on with everything with the sails and stuff. I know a lot, as you can tell. And we were out there, and he was giving us some training in how to do this, which was great, because I was all about it, and kids were excited too. And the thing I noticed is that as we're out there, he is always paying attention to the conditions. You know, the water and the wind and clouds, not a storm coming, you know, it's like, he's always paying attention to the conditions. I don't know if you've noticed this, wind can change on you fast, it can happen and you'd not be prepared for it, and if you're out in the deep blue, 
you're in a little catamaran and the wind gets really bad, you're going to know what you're doing. And so sure enough, he would have to adjust the sails, trim the sails, move things around, tell us to get off certain ropes and do certain things and things would move and we'd get back on course. It was remarkable to kind of learn about and to see and to experience. As I was reading Daniel 8 this week, I thought this reminds me of sailing. Now the reason it reminds me of sailing is it seemed like every time, I don't know if it was just the day we went out or what the situation was, but every time we got everything set, the wind was doing just what it was supposed to do. Everything would shift. You know, the wind would start coming out, it would die down, it would do whatever, and he'd have to, you know, miss, wow, man, it's really strange today. Like, you know, we're doing all this. And every time you go, ah, oh, no, it shifted again. And you got to do something else. And it was like every time we were doing, and I thought, this is exactly like reading Daniel. The moment you begin to catch a little wind in the sail, oh, I think I know, whoa, what was that? And then all of a sudden, you're taken off course. And it's, it's not like being in a speedboat. You've been in a speedboat. You know, you crank it, you press the gas, you steer. You go from point A to point B. When you're in the sailboat, it's not that simple. You've got to pay attention to the conditions and you zigzag your course to your destination because you don't really know exactly what might be thrown your direction. You have to play, as it were, off the conditions and know how to harness them wisely for the purposes of getting to where you need to be. <laughs> well, let me tell you, that feels a lot like apocalyptic literature, especially this week as I just stumbled across a little passage from Leland Reichen's great book, How to Read the Bible's Literature. Listen to how he describes apocalyptic literature, which is where we are here in Daniel 8. He says, these are momentary pictures that give us fleeting, fast impressions, and the reader must be willing to adjust at the abrupt jumps from one scene of action to another. I thought, yep, we're sailing, and I don't know how to sail. Lord, we need your help. We need your help as we're looking at these particular passages. Well, I believe, by God's grace, as we dug in deep this week to Daniel chapter 8, that we do see some amazing things that God shows us here. And taking that zigzagged course not necessarily knowing where the wind is going to blow in a passage or why it's blowing, how it's blowing, and how the interpreter needs to harness the wind in order to understand the destination that the boat is to move towards. As you begin to do it, it actually reveals itself. And you don't get caught in the Bermuda Triangle of interpretive world, but you actually find a path that God himself begins to blow us in the right direction. Now, I think... The best way, at least I know how to do it, is to retell Daniel chapter 8 to you a bit and to do so with an eye to historical fulfillment on the one end and an eye to the redemptive narrative on the other. Because this passage is filled with both of those. Now, the redemptive pieces are a little harder to see, to be quite honest. They're clearer in Daniel chapter 7 than they are in Daniel chapter 8. But it is laden with historical fulfillment. Historical fulfillment that will ring true to many of you as we work our way through Daniel chapter 8. And then after we do that retelling, I want us to cast our eyes to five takeaways. I think we see in the pairing of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and I think you'll see that this text is almost prescriptive for the time in which we live. And it has something very deep to say to us about running the Christian life. Well, as we do this, I want you to just think of three words with me. I want you to think of three words as we work our way through Daniel chapter 8 and as we begin to think about its connection to redemptive history. I want you to think of the word transport. I want you to think of the word transport. You see, that's exactly what happens to Daniel in this passage. He is picked up and taken to another place in this vision. And in that transportation, he sees things that he's never seen. He's beamed up Scotty to another dimension. And in that another dimension, he actually begins to see something about our dimension. Sometimes you have to go outside of your own world to see your world better. That's exactly what actually happens to Daniel in this passage. But in beginning in verse 15, we move from transport to translate because Daniel gets to the end of the vision and we're told he seeks to understand it. He wants to know what in the world's going on here and God very graciously gives him help by the name of an angel called Gabriel. 
and Gabriel begins to translate this vision that he's having a really hard time understanding. Now, I'll warn you ahead of time, Gabriel's extremely helpful, and he leaves us in some mystery as well. So think of transport and translate, but here's what God's really after in this passage. He's after taking us into the vision, into a deeper understanding of the vision, so that we can experience the message of the redemption that's pictured in this passage to experience the transformation that's really needed at the heart level. Transport, translate for transformation. All right, let's think about this transport. The setting is set here in verses 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 8. We're told that we're in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Now, if you've been paying much attention, you were here last week in Daniel chapter 7, you know that's two years earlier from the vision that happened in the last chapter. So two years have passed between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. That's important as you're reading the book of Daniel because sometimes you tend to think these things happen just like this. But in fact, you turn your page and it was 50 years or it was a long stretch of time. In this case, it was two years because at the beginning of Daniel chapter 7, we're told that in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign, he had that vision. So we're two years further in to the journey of Belshazzar's reign. In the dream, we're told that Daniel is transported. Where is he taken? Well, he's taken to Susa. It's called here in the text the citadel or could be translated the capital. It is the place where the fortress or the king actually lived in Babylon. It is a metropolitan center. It's on a beautiful plain that was lushly known for its fruit and its vegetation. This is in a very real sense that Daniel's taken into the heart of Babylon. He's taken to where the action is, if you will. Now, similar to what we saw in Daniel 7, Daniel sees an animal here at the opening of Daniel chapter 8. It is a ram. And we saw from previous, the previous chapter that, the, that seeing an animal in a vision or a composite animal, because last week we saw parts of animals and leopards with wings and bears with bones sticking out of their mouths and all kinds of wild things, to see that image is likely to trigger the fact that we're looking at a symbolic picture of a nation. I think you'll see that as we go along in terms of Gabriel's interpretation, but it's probably safe here to assume that this ram pictures a geopolitical nation. The ram, we're told, is standing on the riverbank of the Ulai, and it's described in a manner to highlight its horns. We're told in verse 3 that it had two horns, and both were large, but one was particularly larger than the other. And one came up last, and it was that higher one. So if you can think of the horns as staggered, on the ram, and the back horn is taller than the one on the foreground, and it's the one that's described with greater prominence in the text. Now, this stuff about horns, you remember this last week? There's all kinds of horns, you know, horns coming up, horns breaking, horns overtaking horns. It was, it was wild. Now, it's not, it's not less wild uh, here in Daniel chapter 8, but we've got this, this clear picture of horns being something that we should pay attention to within this text. Now, why is that the case? Well, in biblical literature, a horn or the lifting up of a horn, which is often described in both positive and negative ways in the Scripture, has to do with power or dominion or authority. It is a manifestation of strength. And you go, well, that's kind of weird. Well, maybe, maybe not. Okay, you, if you think of a bull or a steer and you think about how to consider whether it's fierce or strong, what do you look at? Probably it's horns. It's horns become to you this ominous, fearsome thing. It astonishes you. It's what draws your attention. I mean, I remember as a 10-year-old boy making my way across a field in Mississippi with one of my friends, and it's one of those moments where you're, you're walking across the field, and you're talking, you're not thinking anything, and then... You know, you see in the corner of the field a bull that you'd not seen. You didn't know was in the field when you started your way across. Now, he's eating grass, and he's not even paying attention to us. And listen, my instincts are a little different than my friends. I'm thinking, okay, well, we're okay. All right, I know we're probably about 100 yards from the fence over here, and he doesn't seem to see us at this point. We're going to be okay, steady as we go, incognito. It's going to be fine. Well, my friend's instincts were, ah, and, and then ran, to the, to the gate. And well, let me tell you, you will get the attention of a bull if you scream. And we managed to get the attention. And the bull, you know, kind of 
staggers up and then begins to move towards us and trot. And, you know, it's that moment where you're running, you know, to the gate. Because I have to run now. And he's running and screaming. i got to run. So I'm running. And you're looking at the bull and you're looking at the gate that you're going to climb. And you're like, okay, can I do it? You know, you're kind of in that. Who's going to get there first? You know, what's going to be... What's going to be the situation? You know, I didn't sign, sign up for this. And, and, and you know, you're, you're sitting there, and when you're in that moment, it's like slow motion, you know? You're just, you know, like this, and the Chariots of Fire theme song comes on in your head, and you're just like, are we going to make it? And, of course, we did make it. I'm a, I'm a survivor. I'm, I'm here today with you. We made it actually in plenty of time. It was more fearful than actually a real threat. But what was it I was concerned about? This bull, this was a steer, and it had those two huge horns out of the side. And I don't know, you just wasn't in the mood for a goring that day. I, I don't wake up thinking about experiencing that, and I was going to try to avoid this at all costs if I could. The realization is the fear came because I knew the threat that what this animal displayed showed forth its power and its strength, and I knew that it didn't match up with mine. I knew that I didn't stand much of a chance. Now, the other thing that scares me about a bull or steer is the same thing that scares you, is being trampled by one. You know, you've seen those videos of these bulls that are going down the streets. Was it Spain? Is it right? Somewhere, somewhere I think it's Spain. Right, Spain? And you're going down and the people are chasing. I, forgive me, I don't understand. I just, I don't, I don't understand. Someone can explain it to me later. But, but I'm just like, this is a death wish. I'm not, I, I don't get this. You could get trampled by one of these things. Well, if you look here in Daniel chapter 8, you see this theme of being gored or being trampled as a means of exercising power or showing one's dominion over the other. The ram in this particular case has this significant two horns, one that's higher than the other. It's going in every single direction, we're told. As it goes, the text is giving us indication that it's growing, it's having this sort of exceedingly great power that's, that's accruing to it, and it did as it pleased. No one was able to rival it. This is a picture of a tremendous power that's being given to us here in, here in Daniel chapter 8 regarding the image of the ram. Now, this ram thinks he's king of the hill until Mr. Goat shows up. And when the goat shows up, uh, we have someone who is willing to take the realm to task. Now, this is a moment where the apocalyptic vision shifts from the realm over to the goat. And you're thinking, I don't know what's going on here. This is when you're sailing and you go, oh, the breeze came from another direction. We got to go pick up what's going on over here and begin to trim our sails to be able to understand what's happening. Well, we have another nation that's come into the picture here with the goat. Gabriel will make this clear in, in, in very short order. Uh, this goat with a single large horn comes, as it were, out of nowhere from the west, coming directly towards the ram. We're told that it's running so fast that it's as if its hooves are not even touching the ground. We're told in verse 6 that it comes with powerful wrath. This is not a happy goat. This goat is incredibly angry. And what it does is what I was afraid was going to happen to me back in that field long ago is it comes directly towards the ram and it gores the ram. And we're told afterwards it winds up trampling over the ram, so much so to describe a total destruction that has taken place here. That the ram is no longer existent. That there is a, an assuming of a nation that has happened by another nation and they've now put their name on it. It is an entirely different world power. Now this is where it gets odd if it hasn't gotten odd yet for you. It, it, this horn of the goat broke off in the midst of this battle and in its place four horns appear and then in quick succession we're told that a little horn, we heard about a little horn in Daniel chapter 7, a little horn arises in the midst of these four horns. So this is a fifth horn that comes in the midst of these four this horn grows exceedingly great, we're told, verses 9 and 10, towards the south and the east, and then this interesting note, and the glorious land, which we'll look at in a second. His might, this little horn's might, was so great that it appears as if he was able to even wage war on heaven itself. Look at how he's described. Some of the host, a word we'll look at in a little bit, and some of the stars were thrown down to the ground and trampled by them. There's a sense of the astronomical bodies are collapsing at the war that is being waged by the little horn. 
Now, following this vision, we're told that someone whom we're very thankful for, his name is Gabriel, someone who has the appearance of a man, shows up on the scene, and we begin to move from this transported vision, which is pretty wild, I, I'm with you in that, and begins to translate for us what it is that Daniel's seeing. Now, I think it's really important that you see Daniel, in verse 15, says he had seen a vision and he sought to understand it. It's not always that immediately we receive revelation from the Lord and we get it. Sometimes it takes effort. Sometimes it takes work. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes Gabriel. It takes a teacher, someone to communicate, someone to guide, someone to elucidate what it is that's going on. That's exactly what's happening here in this text. Now, just as we suspected, as Gabriel unpacks uh, this vision, the ram and the goat are indeed nations. He identifies them specifically. He says the ram is the Medo-Persian empire and the goat is the empire of Greece. Now, if you were with us again last week, you remember that the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 7, these two nations were also identified. Now, there is a specific reference, however, to a large horn coming out of Greece. That is the large horn that came out of the goat's head, which at that time was unknown to Daniel and would have been unknown to the people who had heard this vision. But let me tell you, in retrospect, historically, it's pretty clear we know who this horn is. This horn is none other than Alexander the Great. Uh, the great war leader and king over the people of, over the Greek people and the establishment of the empire of Greece. As you history bus will know, Alexander the Great was, well, let's put it this way, he was a bit of an overachiever when it came to war. Um, he decided to take over the Medo-Persian empire and pretty much the then known world by about 33 or so and just had this incredibly wrathful, angry spirit, which is how the goat is actually pictured here in this in this, um, in this vision. And then following his death in 323 BC, do you know what actually happens to Greece? Well, the kingdom itself begins to be divided up and it's divided among four of his generals, four smaller rulers. And we have the, the city-states, as it were, of the, the Greek empire begin to rise, probably symbolic of the four horns that are being described here in Daniel chapter 8. Now, it's at this point that the plot thickens a little bit more because this little horn appears amidst these four horns and we're told it expands the conquest and it begins to attack the glorious, or we could translate it, beautiful land. Now, you might, you might be able to indicate what that is. It's the land of Canaan that's being described here. It's, it's the land of the people of Israel. It's, it's the place of God's chosen dwelling place along with his people. And we're told that the little horn went there and he warred among the host. He even warred among the prince of the host. And this is where we're told that the stars themselves are being thrown down. Now it's possible that the host here could refer to angels. Heavenly host, we often describe them that way. But the biblical term for host literally means armies. Literally just means armies. We will sometimes hear the phrase in the Old Testament, the God of hosts. It literally means the God of armies. We'll sometimes refer to God's people as the church militant or a people who are on mission. The picture here in Daniel 8 is likely not of angels in an actual war with astronomical bodies in the heavenly host, but a man who is warring against the people of God in Jerusalem. A man who is destroying his people and killing his people. And as he does so, he is taking aim at heaven itself. Now, why is that probably the case that's actually happening here? Because this is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature intends to peel back the curtain and say, what you see in the physical scenes of life, there's actually a deeper thread spiritually. There's a scene that's underneath all of the scenes. And that scene is the real scene. It's the real spiritual realities of what's animating all of the other things that you see. What we're actually seeing in this picture is that when you begin to go against the temple of God, which this little horn did, we're told that he halted the sacrifices, the morning and evening burnt offerings, that he destroyed and he desecrated the temple. He went after the place where God dwelt on earth. He went after the worship of God's people. He went after the destruction of God's glorious land. And when he did, he was seeking to wage war on heaven itself. He was going against the very mission of God. The question is, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Well... To some degree, he is a foreshadowing of what Paul will later call the man of lawlessness. 
what will be described as the Antichrist, that great final ruler one day who brings down incredible wrath upon the people of God and seeks to destroy them at every single level. But historically, it's actually very particular. We're told in this context through the clarification that Gabriel gives us that as you begin to put the pieces together around Alexander the Great and Greece as the nation and the four generals and the little horn that rises up, it's pretty clear that we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. A historical figure that is no longer really a household name for much of us. In fact, many of you go, who? Who is this guy? Well, this guy, not a Greek king, but one who rises up out of the midst, begins to wage war against Egypt, and then later takes aim at the people of God himself. He had a chip on his shoulder about Greek culture. He desired that everybody worship Greek gods. He desired that everybody would become a Greek who would bow down to Greek mores and social conventions. He actually banned circumcision. He went in and he halted the sacrifices, began to desecrate the temple with sacrilege. He actually burnt a pig on the altar of the temple. Now, I don't have to tell you, but a pig is an unclean animal. It was a way of thumbing his nose towards the king of the Jews. He actually, instead of... In the Holy of Holies, preserving the Ark of the Covenant, he set up the Greek god Zeus. He turned the temple, a place that was of worship of God, into a shrine to paganism and to Greek culture. Now, this happened in the late first century. He reigned from 174 to 164. And in 164, it was Judas Maccabeus who came in and started the Maccabean Revolution among the Jewish people and ultimately rescued them, delivered them, and reinstated the sacrifices of the people of Israel. And in fact, today, if you speak to a Jew about the, that particular time period, they will laud significantly the deliverer, Judas Maccabeus. And they will look at him, and you know what they'll see? They'll actually describe him in language that we Christians describe Jesus as. In fact, he is the figure that is behind Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights around Christmas time. They are actually memorializing this particular moment in history because they saw it as a recovery and a delivery, as a deliverance from God Himself. All right, it's a lot of history, guys. You still there? Okay, you still there? Oh, don't lie. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, we're, ooh, yeah, we're here. Okay, listen, this is important. The question is, though, what's the point? Right? It's important that we unpack the text and we know it, but what is actually being communicated here? What is, what is Daniel seeing and what is being unfolded? And let me tell you, it's not the news you were hoping to hear. I know you're used to good news from me, but listen to what, listen to what happens here. When Daniel received this revelation, the point was not deliverance. Not in the way that Daniel had conceived it. It's why in verse 27, which you'll be thankful to hear, we're going to take one week on just verse 27 next week because I think it's actually really important. Daniel's response to this vision, I think it teaches us a lot about discipleship, so we're going to slow down. No weird vision stuff next week, just verse 27 of Daniel 8. It'll be great. But notice, Daniel gets to the end of this, and does he feel really good? No, he's as sick as a dog. He lays in his bed for days. Now, I think there's a reason for that. And I don't think it's just because of the gruesomeness of the vision. Part of it is that. But his dream of soon deliverance for the people of God is being completely blown away by the vision of Daniel 8. It's being completely blown away. The point of this vision is to say that the people of God will for a very long time be subjugated to the kings of this world and to the kingdoms of this world and they will not experience the deliverance that their heart is after for a long period of time. Daniel had gone into captivity with his people Israel. He knew that there were promises that they were going to be brought out of Israel. Daniel 8 tells him that he's probably never going to see it. It's never going to be like he thought it was. The generation after generation is going to be subjugated to pagan kings. Now we're going to talk about something in a minute that's interestingly left out from Daniel chapter 8, but I think it's important to the teaching of Daniel 8. But I think here's the main point. God's grace in deliverance 
rarely looks like quick relief in the present for you and me. Let's be quite honest about that. I mean, that's what we expect. You know, we're suffering, we pray once, God should fix it. It should be done. If it takes a day, it's a day too long. That's our spirit. That's our spirit. Daniel gets this vision. We're talking about nations rising and falling as people subjugate. These are, these are hundreds of years even into the future. Daniel is hit by the fact that the future that he saw, the deliverance that he was hoping to hear, is something really different from the revelation he's receiving. This grace of God in deliverance often doesn't come with the kind of quick relief that we're seeking for, but instead often looks like his preserving of us for a long perseverance in suffering and persecution. Oh, wait, that's really different, isn't it? You know, God never promises that you won't have suffering. He never promises that you won't have persecution. He also doesn't promise that your persecution will end in your lifetime or that things will get better or that you'll be able to see the redemption Sometimes I'm in conversations with people and they go, I know the Lord's working this out and I can't wait for the day when I'll be able to look back on this and I'll be able to know what it is that he was doing and how it is going. That day might not come. To be just quite frank with you. You think it might come, but it might not come. Daniel was sickened by that revelation. It horrified him. It, it meant that God was going to answer the cry for deliverance, not in rescuing them from a situation, but being present with grace in the midst of it. It meant that he was not going to take them out of pain and heartache. It meant that he was going to preserve them and give them the grace of perseverance in the pain and heartache. Let me tell you, this is normally God's way. This is his normal way. Have you noticed this? I'm amazed at looking at commentators on Daniel, how many of them run to the conclusion that the end of, you know, the end of history is near. You know, Jesus is about to come back. You know, that sort of quick, this is going to happen. They look at the news and they go, man, it's terrible. It's terrible. It can't get, it can't get any worse than this. Well, only if you're a student of history. If you're a student of history, you know that some of the things that actually dot our headlines and YouTube videos today or look a whole lot like what's happened for the last several thousand years to Christians. It's not Johnny-come-lately stuff. I mean, it makes headline news, but it's in the back annals of history. We don't like to hear that because we'd refer to think that, oh, no, Jesus is about to come take me away. He's going to make it better. He's going to put a quick Band-Aid on it. Sometimes we wonder, can it get worse? Yes. Yes, it can. It really can. Daniel was seeing it here. It was bad where Daniel was, and God was saying, it's going to get worse for a long time before it gets better. That's an incredibly hard message. That's an incredibly hard word. Now I want to just put this in context and by application just for a couple of seconds here to make mention of the fact that I think this has been a pretty, if I can put it this way, morally turbulent summer. I mean, I'm flipping open my laptop and it's, you know, gun violence causing racial riots at parts in our country. It's, it's Planned Parenthood videos about harvesting organs of kids that aren't born. It's about throats being slashed on beaches of those who are believers like me and if they could get their hands on me, they'd do the same thing. It's not pretty, is it? Sometimes you get worried almost to watch the news, right? It's a pretty, pretty morally turbulent scene. If you begin to see the shift in moral ethics indicated by the Supreme Court decision, when you see ESPN giving awards to people who have surgeries for courage that point to moral failure and people give standing ovations for the speech, Ding, ding, ding. You're not in Kansas anymore. The world is not as you had thought or hoped it would be. Some of us are surprised by this. 
Now, if you look at history, it's actually par for the course. We are the anomaly, friends. We are the anomaly. And it looks like we're going to become more mainstream in church history. I don't mean that we will become more mainstream. I mean our story will become more typical. Now it could be, and I hold out tremendous hope of the work that the Spirit of the Lord can do. Do you know He can change the heart of kings in a day? He turns around nations on a dime. He is in absolute control and He can send revival through the power of His Spirit and His Word in a moment's notice. I'm also well aware that He often lets things go and delivers His people in the midst of persecution rather than from it. You think, well, that's not very nice. Well, let's think of the gospel you and I embrace. Don't forget you follow a crucified Savior. You follow a crucified Savior. We talk about becoming more like Christ. Do you have any idea what you're saying? <laughs> Lord, forgive us for flippantly using that language. I mean, we should pause and say, Lord, I think I mean make me more like Christ. Lord, make my heart really to know and to believe and to be willing to embrace whatever it means to become more like Christ. I'm aware by praying that prayer that that may mean I hang on a cross for him. And then my blood gets spilled. And I pay the price that was paid for me. Paul said he counts it an honor to suffer as Christ suffered. It was a part of the joy that was set before Paul as it was the joy that was set before Christ. He did what? Christ endured the cross. Now let me tell you, did Christ pray for a little relief? You know he did. <laughs> and I let this register with you. He didn't get it when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. He didn't get it. Now, I'm not saying Christ will not allow the cup maybe to pass from you and me. Friends, I pray that that's the case. I just want to note the fact that our Savior didn't get that prayer answered. Because the greater mission of God was through his bloodshed to bring praise to his name, to save the world, to redeem mankind, to establish his kingdom. And it could be through your bloodshed the same thing would happen. Are we thinking about raising up a generation of young people and ourselves who are willing to run towards the blade if necessary for Christ? Friends, that's what Daniel 8 is calling us to. It's not calling you to the, a nice little suburban life in North America and the American dream. This dream is far from American. It's biblical. It's biblical. And it's the reality of things. And I am not one prone to talk about the sky falling and going the chicken little route. And I'm not with you now either. But you don't have to have high gifts in cultural awareness to see which way the wind is blowing. And a little bit of historical knowledge will tell you it has a trajectory. God is telling us in this very passage, He's saying, I want you to know, friends, deliverance may not come in the way that you want it, at the speed that you want it. It will come, but it will come often very different. And it may come through the suffering and the persecution, not from it. Now, a couple of these takeaways just as we go and as we close. Friends, I want you, I plead with you, prepare to face suffering and persecution for Jesus Christ. I say that with a bit of a smile on my face because it needs to be for the joy that was set before you. It, you realize 
Death's got nothing on you. The evil one's got nothing on the redeemed of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing to be afraid of. Prepare for that end. Prepare for your enemies to prevail for a time over you. This is spoken directly in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Daniel got really upset in Daniel chapter 7 when he saw the little horn waging war against the saints and winning. It's really important that we acknowledge that the victories of tomorrow's headlines are not the victories of eternity. It's very important that we understand that. We have to be more and more willing to be at peace with losing because we have won in Christ. That's what's going on here in Daniel 8. It will prevail over us for a time. And it won't look like we are on the winning side. Which leads me to this third application. Set your mind on the heavenly courtroom. Set your mind on the heavenly courtroom. Don't get, be aware of your conditions and circumstances. We'll talk more about that next week as Daniel was, as he went about the king's business. But set your mind on the heavenly courtroom. Set your mind on eternal things, on the things that really matter. Let that be the light through which this cultural moment gets seen for you. Do you see, when things seem like they're falling apart, does not mean that the unseen world of the kingdom of God is not advancing by stretches and limits you could hardly even imagine. Victory is not seen through the seen. It's seen through the spiritual. And we have to set our minds on the heavenly court. Remember, listen to this. We have to rest in the redemption of the Son of Man. Listen to what's here in verse 25. Daniel 8, 25, a description of the little horn as we close. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. I love that. It doesn't say he's great. It just says he's a legend in his own mind. He's really excited about himself. And he shall even rise up, look at this, against the prince of princes. Now, who is this? Well, little interpretive help here by your translation. The P is capitalized for a purpose. This is a picture of the deliverer of God himself. Potentially God himself is described here as the prince of princes. It may be the picture of Joshua 1, the commander of the armies, who goes in before God's people, who has the hillside full of the heavenly host who've come to wage war for the kingdom of God. That's probably a part of the picture here. And what happens is the little horn bumps up against the prince of princes. And before this, we see him, all of his ravages and all of his destruction. And then look at just a little note at the end of verse 25. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. You, that phrase, by no human hand, it only happens one other time in the book of Daniel. You know where it is? It's in Daniel chapter 2. It's actually in the very visions that parallel Daniel 7 and 8. There is a picture between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and 8. They're paralleling each other. If you look back at Daniel 2, it's the vision of Nebuchadnezzar with the statue, right? The gold head, the, the silver breastplate and arms and the bronze waist and, and, and legs and the, the clay and the iron uh, composite uh, below and the legs and the feet. And we're told... That in that vision, as Daniel tells it to Nebuchadnezzar, a hand takes a rock out of the mountain of God and it was cut not by human hands. And the rock lays low all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all the iron and clay, and the rock grows to feel the entirety of the earth. This is not a small hint in Daniel 8 that we're speaking about our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And what Daniel is actually seeing through the voice of Gabriel here through interpretation is the fact that, Daniel, you're going to see an incredibly difficult history of Israel unfold long after your time. Your children, your grandchildren, and many other generations are going to go through difficulties. But there will be a time when the rock will come forth. His name will be Christ. And he will begin to advance a kingdom. And that kingdom will begin to spread over all of the earth. And there will be no hell that will prevail against this kingdom. This kingdom will indeed be established for all times. And there will be no rival ultimately to its king. But Daniel, it's a long way off. Run the race that is set before you. Look at the heavenly courtroom. The rock is coming. You will be redeemed. You might not see it. It will happen. Run the race that is set before you. You see the goat and the ram and the beast and the little horns don't get the last word. It's the lamb that gets the last word. It's the lamb who didn't come with murderous intent to destroy all the nations of the world. It was the lamb who came with a, a willingness to be the martyr, to lay down his life, to be slaughtered for the nations. This is the power that has been given to the church. This is the power of the gospel, not a power that shakes its fists in the eyes of nations and kings, but a power that opens its arms wide and says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is this lamb that we read about in the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God will be there and the lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. It might not be tomorrow or your lifetime or your great-great-grandchildren's lifetime, but it will be, and we live by the light of that time, running the race, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter who endured the cross. Let's take up our cross and follow him. Father in heaven, we ask you, set this truth emotion in our hearts and let the realities of this truth sing. Give us joy, not cause us fear, but make us bold to be your witnesses in the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.